Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Podcast people, you are listening to episode 184 of the Howie Games Part A, featuring a superstar of the AFL, Patrick Dangerfield. And Dangerfield straight into the team, straight onto the Sharon, and straight toward goal. You wouldn't, would you? Can you believe that? Slap forward into the hands of Dangerfield. Oh, he's on. He's on the danger. Danger puts the Jets on, opens up the angle. Massive. Paddy is a seriously decorated dude. Premiership player, Brownlow medalist, eight-time All-Australian, four-time BNF winner across two clubs. Patrick is the man. So many lost and left behind, and no one seemed to care. Those who should seems like they're blind, pretending they're not there. Can't they see? They hold the key. Could make things better if they try. Oh my Jaja, tell me why won't they open up their eyes? From fishing and surfing to footy, family, internal belief, and how a quiet moment sitting on the loo set Pat on the path to success. This is an episode with something for everyone. Just a really relaxed conversation about sport and life. Patrick is on the show, thanks to Amy, and there is the odd clangor or two in here. Righty let's get on with it with a man who understands the need for balance in life, Patrick Dangerfield. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Sinai. Welcome to the Howie Games. A man that fascinates me, he's a fisherman, he's a surfer, he's built a beautiful house, he's an elite footballer, he's a media star, he's a podcaster, he's dominating with Amy at the moment on a series of ads. Not much he doesn't do. Paddy Dangerfield, welcome to the Howie Games. How are you? Howie, thank you for having me. I think um, it's an interesting intro. Most of it do very, very poorly, just do lots of it. Yeah, but you do the football thing well and it has built you a beautiful house, which we'll get to. I, I, I had a bit of time driving down to the beautiful Mox Creek to think, what are we going to do here? And I thought from the outside that you seem to be such an elite professional athlete. I thought this is going to be great for, <laughs> for kids to listen to, to, to what to get to AFL level and, and the diet and the training and, and the full gamut. And then yes. I roll in here yep. and you're preparing <laughs> banana cake. Yep. Bread, banana bread. <laughs> banana bread. What I can only describe as like a, a, a large finger bun with a centimetre of butter on each slice. And then what, what are those little custard things? I'm not sure. When I picked up a coffee this morning, my local coffee shop, they're like, oh, do you want to take these? I said, I've, I've got Howie this morning. Right. When they was asking about what are you doing for your day? Yeah. I said, oh, take him these. You will love them. Well, I, I will love them, but <laughs> the whole diet professionalism discussion, to, I'm not sure we're getting much out of it because if you're eating that every day, you're, you're playing at 128 kilos, Patrick. Well, my teammates would probably say that I'm playing at 128 <laughs> kilos. Um, not every day, just every second day. Okay. <laughs> so that, that's gone out the window and then I walk in here and you say, you know, I'm not really that interesting. I don't really like talking about myself. So we're, I don't know how this is going to go. No, I didn't say I don't like talking about myself. Um, Anyone that does, I, there's always a fair amount of mayo that's put into that, I think. 
hey, that, mate, there is so much to talk to you about, but lifestyle is obviously important to you. I'm looking out your front window here and there's surf 80 metres away. I know you're into surfing and fishing. Doesn't mean I'm any good at either no, of them. No, that doesn't matter though because <laughs> it, it takes you away from day-to-day life. So what's the what's the trip here? In Because people say to me, how can you live in Barwon Heads? How much do you have to drive up yeah. and back? And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's an hour 21 to Marvel and it's an yep. hour 29 to the MCG. And sometimes I dislike the drive, but when I drive back in the driveway and I've got three days at home, yeah. my life is a beautiful thing. What What yeah. is it from here to Cadinia Park? It's about 50 minutes. Right. And I find that drive in the morning is therapeutic and it's only really 15 minutes of traffic once you get to Warren Ponds. But... I get to Anglesey, Point Road night, mm-hmm. I see Split Point Lighthouse and I'm like, all the problems in the world, um, you know, relatively to your own existence just disappear because it's like a deep breath out and it's home. It's where I grew up. Uh, it's where I wanted the kids to grow up and footy's been so generous to me yeah, that it's see that, enabled yeah. me to, to build this house um, and to – you know, to live in a place that I absolutely adore and love. So how important is it to be able to withdraw from what is an obsession in this state and come down here? Like you were born in Mox Creek? Born in Geelong and then dad dad bought here in the early 80s. I think he paid $7,000 for his block. Okay. Um, For those not familiar with Victorian coastal real estate, it's probably worth a touch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to be honest, but in fact, it's disappointing. What's your dad's name? John. It's disappointing John didn't buy the whole town because the Dangerfields would be the richest people in Victoria if he had. Funny story. Dad, Dad's dad, my pa, yep. um, when Dad was looking to buy, there was a, a block on the front row. It was $11,000. Oh. And Pa's view was, you know, why would you want to buy that? It's way too expensive. The salt in the front, that's just terrible. Um, pa. And what the one thing Dad always said was, if a place ever comes up close to the front, just do it. Because I drive past the front every day and I regret every part <laughs> of it. <laughs> So your your family are still. I've read articles in the past that yeah. the, the, the the relatives to you here in Mogs Creek are a vast proportion of the population. Is that a well? It's not exactly true. It's about because a couple of hundred houses, houses in Mogs. Mum and dad are about three hundred and fifty meters away, um, so they're pretty close. Uh, it took Marge some time to get used to. Um, this and is your beautiful wife. And then uh, and then my sister's probably half a k away. Just on the back of the um, the Otway Forest, so and there's a few aunties and uncles mixed How in. How good with young kids though? You've got three young kids um, to have amazing the grandparents. Yes, in fact, I'm not even sure <laughs> I consider you a fair income parent because with with grandparents and sisters, like that's old school family around the corner. That's fantastic. Yeah, and I I wouldn't consider myself a proper parent either. <laughs> <laughs> if if they um, mind you, I did I did read something the other day saying the more time that your children spend with their grandparents, it actually extends their lives. So my parents, I think, will live to about 500 at this, day, <laughs> at this rate. It's a fair bit of going down the road, <laughs> down there. How old are you, kids? Uh, George is turning six this year, Felicity turning four, and, and Winifred turning one. So. Winifred is a beautiful yeah. name. What change of perspective have you had since Paddy Dangerfield and Marty were just together but without kids, what, seven years ago? Yeah, like it's, it's a cliche um, question, but it's a question I love. Well, I moved back to, or we moved back to um, Victoria in 2015. So spent eight years in Adelaide, moved back in 2015, um, and we have kids straight away. 
And that was the, or a kid, didn't start with two. Um, That was a very big eye-opener in terms of life and balance and um, just trying to get the, the, you know, the, the right balance between being a pro and not being selfish. And I look back and go, I was definitely selfish for when George was first born. I had no idea what was going on. You sort of have to be there, don't you, to get to your level? It doesn't make it any, any easier for my wife. No. Um, but, no, yeah, you do. You do. But it, it gives you great, certainly, perspective, certainly the older that I've got and having kids. And, and we've got – we might have eight or nine dads at Geelong. So we're a very unique club in that sense. Um, but it does give you a good balance on dealing with losing – and the perspective on big losses that aren't really in the scheme of life mm. all that bad. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting perspective. Like you talked about you're not a good surfer and a good fisherman. I, I had a look back on the tube last night and you type in Patrick Dangerfield surfing, there is a very stylized one minute, I am Patrick Dangerfield, where you are paddling out. <laughs> Fox footy ad. Yeah. For, for Fox <laughs> footy. Um, I liked it. Whoever said you shouldn't mix business with pleasure was in the wrong business. I am Patrick Dangerfield. Yeah, look, what I will say for any sort of young player listening, if there's any listening at all, <laughs> you can say no to things, you know. <laughs> you know, I've done a few things that are like, you know, you can say no. I remember doing a, a TV shoot, not a TV shoot, a, a photography shoot in Adelaide, a room full of danger signs. It's like... Was I thinking at the time? <laughs> like, why don't you just say no? Why don't so, you just say no? You are here, courtesy of Amy. That that might be the first Amy Clanger that we've come across. So, some some dodgy ads. What type of surfer are you? Like, I, I didn't learn till I was twenty. So, the local blokes I surf with, I go and surf for them, and I'm like, wow, I wish I could do that. I'll never be able to do that. So, I can stand up, but I can't do what they can do. Where are you? Well, no, I, I'm I'm useless, right. but. The time I spend in the water is the most therapeutic time you can really spend. So I, my view on surfing is well, the best surf is the one having the most fun. This is very true. Surfing for me isn't competitive at, at all compared to some of the mates that it is. It is just a way to escape from everything else in life. It's clean, you get in the water, you're not focusing on anything other than the direction of the swell and the next wave. So it's sort of, it funnels everything into a really narrow focus on something that really doesn't mean anything at all. Mm versus what you sort of live with with day-to-day life, which I'm sure you can understand yes, with I what can. you do. It's like, so it's this escape that you can't really compare to anything else. I think one wave too, it was, I had a good surf yesterday and I got one wave where I was like, I was okay on that wave and that'll make me smile for two weeks. Yep. So where have you got, now if you're not a surfer, you can tune out for the next three minutes when I talk surfing with Patty. What's been the best wave you've ever caught and where was it? The one that lit you up that was like, mm, I was above myself there. Yeah. Well, my favourite, probably Castles. Right. Down the Otways. Yeah. Um, so we started now. Once we get past Cape Otway, for those that don't know Victoria, the waves get a lot bigger. They do. They do. So whenever we'd go down there, and this is sort of going way back, if my uncles are all teachers, dad was a teacher growing up, um, my cousin's a year older than me, so very, very close. So you'd organise every now and then when the swell was down here, you get up early and, you know, go down the coast, take a day off school. And I remember going down there and having beautiful um, left-hand waves, which is rare on our coast, most of rights. I'm, I'm a goofy. Ah. Um, so having 
a wave that I could stand up and wouldn't be, you know, slow off the mark from the very beginning with was wonderful and I love surfing bigger waves, um, which is what you get down the down the coast. How big is big for you? I think that was sort of six or seven foot. Okay, that's yeah. big enough. That's so that was nice. Uh, now, and not too big that it's going to bury you as well. Now, fishing is obviously an obsession and a business. I was lucky enough to go out with your man, Aaron, last year for my young bloke's birthday. He took us out we went fishing. but He was a bit flat that day, actually. Yeah. Normally he has he, – he nails every time he goes out. He said it was hard work. Well, <laughs> for like the guru, <laughs> some fish would have been nice, Paddy. But anyway, any, I pumped him up to my 11-year-old and it was it's his 10th like birthday. It's like should have been here last week. Well, sort of we, you know, we drove from here to frickin' Frankston looking for <laughs> – there was sounders, there was – and very little fish in well, the boat. That's fishing sometimes. It is, it is. And I explained that to my – he was mad. He, he was just happy to be out in the boat with Aaron, who's a lovely chap. Um, and it, I know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passion of yours. What's your best days fishing? Like what, what, do you, what, what is fishing for you? Because, you know, in, in recent times, this whole area has become known for its big bloody tuna. I know, which, is, which had been foreign for us for so long because it was just out fish throughout the – the early 1900s um, and globally, we just hadn't treated the fish trucks well. So it's amazing to see what the return's been. My my ultimate day is spending time with dad, to be honest, right. whether it's driving down the Otways and fishing through some of the local streams and fly fishing there um, or bringing George along. Like that connection with dad is something we've, we've both really love, whether it be surfing or fishing, but fishing for us has just been this time together, which is golden. And he, to this day, is still my best mate. And I love that, yeah, that that connection with Dad and that time we spend together and just whether it's talking about life or talking about the next pool or whatever it might be and being fortunate enough to travel to some wonderful places and spending time together has been, you know, one of the best parts of my life. How did you know? We'll get to your journey and what age you went to Adelaide, but... Like that's very cool that your dad's your best mate. How, how, it's not a good reflection on your other mates, but it's fantastic for your dad. How, <laughs> how did you negotiate the, uh, the period where you're younger and you think you know it all and you don't want to take advice from your dad? Like, Was that a period or did you just get through? No, through I don't think that was ever a period right. for me. No, <laughs> no, it was always – like when it, when it came to footy, it was never – there was never too much direction from dad. Dad coached me early on. Did but he? It was never over over the top. And then as soon as I made under 16s, it was, well, you know, they're the experts. I can help you around the edges, but I'm here to be dad. I was there to be mum. That was their job. Uh, and it wasn't overbearing or, you know, overparenting around that. So it wasn't to confuse anything. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I, I never really had that, that phase in life because cool. we had such a strong connection. So, like, was it a massively – so this is Mogs Creek now. It's, a, it's I'd imagine there's a lot of people here just with holiday houses. I presume the vast the majority of the residents are not here. from here. Yeah. No, they're not yeah. from here. So what about a massively – I see my kids growing up at the skate park and the local cricket ground and surfing and fishing and swimming and running, a lifestyle that was probably 40 years ago. Your lifestyle here 20 years ago must have – was it just free, free, free? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was always the thing that – I wanted to provide my kids with. There's no fences through mm, here. I it's noticed just, that. It's not what people do. You know, you're, my off-season training was running through the, you know, the the Otway Forest up the back, um, and it was it was such an outdoors-based lifestyle, 
we didn't have Channel 10 until I think 2004. We just, the, the aerial didn't go that way. Wow. So I didn't see The Simpsons till 2004. Yeah. That was the, that was the biggest, that? biggest opener of all time, you know. <laughs> Digital television, you don't know what that did for folks in Moggs Creek. Um, you know, you just, you just didn't get it because, you know, of where we live. Yeah. Um, but there's a beauty to that. Yeah. It's great that you can give that to your kids. You mentioned your dad. So where, who did you first play footy for? So my local club was Anglesey. Anglesey, so the Kangaroos. Yep, the Kangaroos. So funnily enough, my brother-in-law coaches the team now. My sister coaches the netball club. So the connection's really? still, yeah, really strong. So yeah. what, what's your first memories of first playing for the Anglesey Kangaroos? Uh, really short shorts, like your Caparest shorts. I don't know why. Like right. I'm sure there were different shorts available, but it was... I think they must have been hand-me-downs of, of some description. <laughs> I'd sunk in the wash over the, the seasons. the Guernseys being, uh, I remember thinking like how lucky these other kids were to wear silky jumpers <laughs> and we didn't have the silky jumpers. You didn't jumpers have the old woolen, did you? Yeah, the, sorry, they were oh, the woolen. They were the woolen. Well, nobody yeah. in the wet at Anglesey. Yeah, so it was, it was those. And I remember seeing other clubs that had these silky jumpers. We didn't quite have that with our uh, budget <laughs> constraints at Anglesey. Funnily enough now, I mean, they're, they're worth a fortune, the yeah. woolen jumpers. Yeah. But um, growing up, that's that's my first memories and the kangaroos on the ground and that sort of well, stuff. Well, because we've talked about um, what you're wearing, I know that you've kind of listened to some episodes of this show, so you know that the uh, child that is most excited about the guest asks a question. It normally comes near the end of the show, but you get my 11-year-old who is Mac. Perfect. Rolls is the big penguin. And he's got a question to you. It, it, these are, I just say, this is the guest and he comes back and says, right, I've got my question. So this is what he's got for you. Hey, Paddy, Big Penguin here. First off, I love the way how you play footy, but I'd love it even more if you played for the Hawks. <laughs> I think he's going to swap now, mate. Anyway, <laughs> I've noticed that when you play footy, you play socks up, shirt tucked in. And I play the exact opposite. I play socks down, shirt out. But what I want to know is why do you play socks up, shirt tucked in? Of all the insightful questions he could have gone for, that, that, that is what he's produced, Patrick. Well, I loved Buckley growing up. Right. N- never never barracked for Collingwood. But you're a Buckley But man. I love Buckley. And then probably twofold that the socks we had back then were so massive that, like, you couldn't <laughs> – if you had them down, yeah. like, they were halfway up your calf anyway. Yeah. Like, they were enormous. They got in the like, way of kicking the footy they on they your like boot. They were like stockings, yeah. <laughs> and, and why tuck in? Well, because the, the woolly jumpers, like – if you if you had them down, they were like a dress. Right. So adding in the Buckley element of keeping it neat and then um, the practicalities of, well, this is just going to look ridiculous mm. either way with these bunched up socks and a long jumper. So um, a bit of a mix. Well, you have got the bucks because uh, you would see highlights of yourself. You're quite a high-shorted operator. Very high-shorted. Um <laughs> Not quite as high as Bucks I was at times. They're quite high though, Patrick, <laughs> to be honest. They are quite high. Uh, I like to be neat Huge. in terms of game day. Yes. It's not always the way that I dispose of the footy. Yeah, but in, t- <laughs> in terms of um, presenting, <laughs> right. I, I like everything to be sort of neat and tidy, sort of a bit how I live my life. Um, yeah, and I suppose it just flows into my footy. I, I walk past your garage though. I'm not sure that this fully happening in the garage, there's fishing boats, there's surfboards, no, that, there's that, children's that equipment. There's last all sorts week that was clean. Was it? My children oh, okay. are just, they just take over things. And yes. George loves 
going through my tools. So I'll go to my bench that is normally clean and then things will just disappear. I've got to put like, saws away, like are, electronic are you, are you a handy type operator? Well, I like to think of myself really? as a really handy operator. But when I use, like when I buy a tool, I use a like a you know, Ryobi, sort of your weekend warrior sort of stuff. Okay. And then, you know, with what social media is and how people just love to, you know, have pot shots. It's yes. like, you've got a Ryobi. And it's like, mate, do I look like a chippy to you? <laughs> oh, they're not like, happy with what, the stand. What part the of me saw? looks like Bob the Builder? Like, <laughs> I'm your handyman, you know, do bits and pieces around the place. I'm not in construction. That's more than I've got. That's more than I've got. So your footy, and I, I always ask this question, I often use this comparison. Were you, um, were you a standout? As, as a kid, were you Ricky Ponting that was always going to play for uh, an AFL team or were you Justin Langer that had to work really hard to live that dream? There's um, no time for modesty. It's probably a, a balance. It's probably somewhere in the middle. Okay. I didn't play, missed out on the under-12s. I remember playing in the under-15s Victorian competition. Yep. And going there, we travelled to um, Canberra and absolutely hated the experience. Didn't play much, played on a half forward flank and didn't, um, you know, was very reserved and didn't sort of give myself to any of my other teammates in terms of just being so anxious. And then I, I said to myself- Anxious about that, performance? And just being there, not, okay. not feeling like um, I'm good enough to be there. And then I remember finish, uh, finishing that uh, experience Going home, mum and dad drove home and it was a sort of quiet car um, and and having really struggled. And then I remember randomly I was sitting on the toilet at home as a 15-year-old and I said to myself, if you're going to be good at this and make this as what you do, then you need to give it absolutely everything and you need to change the way that you are around people, around teammates and you need to believe in yourself more than anyone else. Hmm. Um, and I changed my entire persona around how I'm going to act in a team environment, how I'm going to, um, you know, be far more extroverted than introverted. Uh, and that sort of flowed on to the following year where I just thought, bugger it. This is who I am around Anglesey. I'm going to do that in representative footy. And that's what happened. Back to Pat in the moment. Next up on the show, a guest high up on the request list for many of you, it seems, from all the messages that have been sent my way over the last year or so at MarkHoward03 on Twitter and the gram, Scotty Boland, the old overnight sensation who had been working for 20 years to be an overnight sensation. So, mate, you've got six for five at this stage off 3.3 overs. You're about to win the Ashes. Yep. Can you actually... Have you have you taken figures like that in under tens or twelves or anything? Oh, maybe in under twelves. Maybe in under twelves. Yeah, so, nothing so, since then. Can you conceive what's happening? No, I, yeah, still couldn't believe it. That was probably the only time I thought. I remember walking down. I might have had three or four balls left in that over. I was like, oh, I could get seven for here. Like that's probably the only time I thought ahead of. <laughs> still wanted another one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, and yeah, that final. Uh, so it was left hand, right hand in when Greeny was bowling um, from the other end. So I went. I was going from fine leg on one side to fine leg on the other, and the crowd were going nuts both sides. So I was like, started to try and enjoy it a bit. Um, but then I was thinking, oh, I might be able to get another wicket here. That was probably the only time I sort of thought ahead. And then Greeny clean bowled Jimmy Anderson, and that was it. And you won the Ashes. That's Scott Bowler next up on the show. Let's get back to Pat. 
the first time I heard your name, I still work in the Channel 10 newsroom, not in sport. I was like, the, the cut up a tree or there's been a UFO sighting in Warrandyte or, you know, <laughs> someone's got a... Actually, someone had a sheep that acted like a dog. That, 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 that were the stories I was doing. Just, yes, just before yeah, quarters yeah. would do the sport. It's yeah. 5.38, let's go to the zany <laughs> guy. Um, but I used to sit next to Kelly Underwood. And I, I was yep. sitting next to her when she got the phone call from David Barham to say, do you want to call the AFL football? I remember that. But I remember her doing a story about this kid from down the coast who was drafted to Adelaide and he was still at school. And, and it, it was you. Yes, I, I, yep. I, I, I presume Kel must have come down. I don't recall the story. I presume she came down and interviewed you or? Well, Kel knows my grandpa really well. Uh-huh. Um, and grandpa worked in sport and has worked in sport his whole life. He's in his early 80s now. Um, and I'm assuming it would have been probably grandpa saying, you need to do a story on, oh. you know, young Patrick. This is the um, same grandpa that often goes to the football. Yeah, correct, and uses a library card to get into, you know, he get into the Pentagon with, you know, a, a senior citizen's card. If you have a lanyard and a, and a strong enough look on your face, you can get anywhere, and grandpa is a prime example of that. Well, he spends a lot of time you know, in the AFL media room. Honestly, and, and I'm not sure he has any accreditation to get in there. I hope, I hope this doesn't destroy his ability to get in there. But he would talk his, he was not listening to he, this. He would talk his way around it. You know, I listened to you. Um, to your Hutchie podcast a yep. couple of weeks back. And that just reminded me of Grandpa <laughs> just talking his way into the Super Bowl. Like, it was just, he has this innate ability. So I think that happened um, via sort of his relationship with Cal and then, um, yeah. So how old were you? You, you got drafted? At, drafted at, at, 17, at when, 17 when you could be drafted younger. Right. At pick number what? Pick number 10. Okay. And what's, like you talked about your, your dad, your best mate, You've grown up here in a relatively sheltered, you've got your parents all around. Are you hoping you're staying in Victoria or do you just want to go and play football somewhere? No, I was really open to playing anywhere. Uh, my draft year, I didn't expect to, be, to go anywhere near as high as pick 10. And then when Adelaide, um, when I had meetings with Adelaide, they were just like, if he's there, we're going to take him. The third meeting we had with Adelaide, Matt Randall came down with a six pack. Dad doesn't really drink. And um, so, so Matt drank them all and drove home. <laughs> <laughs> he came down to the creek. He, he came down um, and, and Hamish Ogilvy, who's still there now, um, you know, we'd met a few times. Um, and then the final meeting that came down, sunk the six-pack himself and said, if he's there at pick 10, we're going to take him. We think he's going to be there. Um, and that was that. And so you wouldn't have even thought about this for one second, but you'll be starting to think about it now because you're a father of three and they're getting older and you understand the love you have for your children. What do you think right. it was like on your mum and dad when you were their boy in the families and then you're in Adelaide? Um, I think it was tough at different stages, but knowing that this was my dream and, and they were fully supportive of that. And I think it was, it was definitely their dream as well. They love the footy. They go to it every week. Um, but it's in a different state. I finished school first. So I said to clubs before I was in the draft, um, I'm going to finish school uh, before I go. You know, that's the condition. So when's the draft? Are. What 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 time? November. Is November, and you still got another full year of school to do. Yeah. So this is the end of year eleven. Yeah. So I stipulate at the time that I'm going to finish school first, and I remember sitting in an interview with a few different clubs, but at uh, Choco Williams, um, and he just absolutely grilled me around around it, and um, 
But I was I was steadfast. This is what I'm going to do. If you don't like it, you don't pick me. So where was that? Were you watching the draft? Was the draft on the radio? Like- no, I, I went to uh, went to the draft at Marvel. Okay. Or Eddie had whatever it was called then. Colonial. I wore I wore camo um, shorts. Oh, and every year the draft comes up, I have sent people send it to me because it, it must circulate around. <laughs> You can't you have to wear pants to the draft. Like, what are you doing? I'm sure. So, um, yeah. So, so, are you at school the next day? Yeah. Are you the hero of the school? It's like our Patrick's been drafted. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I mean, the I actually debuted that following year, living in Victoria. And this this was the genesis of a Kel story that you were travelling yes. over and and you were potentially going to play a game. So I I, I only travelled over a few times. Did the preseason a couple of times throughout school holidays. But the, the week I debuted, I was not at training at all. I rocked up there Friday afternoon at the Parkview and then played the next day at Marvel. And I think back now, like, what the hell my teammates would have been thinking? Like, why the hell have, has Craigie picked him for one? Yeah. He hasn't trained with us at all. And now he's going to run out of. So you're, you're, you're 17. You've, you've hardly even been there. What, what was it like walking into the club for the first time as a. Well, as I spent a kid? five weeks throughout the preseason there. I passed out in the first bike test we had at the club, the first day of training. Just, Charlie what, Walsh. What happened? Well, Charlie Walsh, ex-Australian cycling mm. coach. Um, it's still, to this day, easily the hardest training that I've experienced in my life. <laughs> Three hours on the track and then you get on the bike for 40 minutes. Uh, and it was probably too much because um, we get cooked sort of halfway through the year every year. So what, what happened on the bike? Just passed out. It was just exhausted, didn't drink enough, fall off. Cameras actually capture it. Welcome, Adelaide. <laughs> and um, but it was, but the lesson was like, well, this is this is what it takes to be great, and it's still a hugely valuable lesson, and probably something that plays now. And I, I hate being this person, but it was different training. There was a different level of um, resilience that was needed, and we're, we're, we 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 far more than what we once did. How does that affect performance on a Saturday in an AFL team, the difference in training now? Well, I think, you know, young players come in and it's and it's balanced and you, you're making sure that they're not injured throughout their, their first year. So you're building as much of a connection with your teammates as you can and the, that easiest connection comes on the field where you can earn the respect of your peers. But it was, it was a wonderful resilience-based training in Adelaide because it was the grind. And it was extraordinarily hard, and you're on edge every single session. And your experience at the time, there was eight other players drafted that year, Adelaide. So you're all coming through together, mm. experiencing that. And it was awfully tough. And there was no room for um, complaints. It was just dig in. It was a great thing. It's a great thing to to learn early on in my career. So, what are your memories of your first game? Uh, I remember trying to tackle David Hill. Remember David Hill? Yeah. He's a hill. He's yeah. a mountain. And I see, um, as Essendon, yeah. Yeah. And Massive I remember man. I remember tackling him and him still running, like for a <laughs> while. And then he handballed it off. Like this like remember it so vividly. <laughs> first um, kick, first goal club? First kick, first goal. Get to the leading player. Danger field it is. So he's coming out of the square, Liam, just like you said. It won't be quite the blustery goal. wind that he'd be uh, used to. Very exciting though, isn't it? He's had three handballs. This, his first kick. Will he join the club? On the siren. First kick in AFL footy. It was never in doubt. He just goes, bang, this is what I'm born to do. And don't his teammates love it? You know, joined an illustrious group of, I think, about 3,000 players. (laughs) (laughs) They've done it. And and was it it 
I can do this at the first game or, oh, my gosh, what have I got myself into? No, nah, I have never, ever played a game where I've ever felt like that in terms of I've always – every time I've stepped foot on the field, my view's been if I'm at my best, I don't think anyone's best is better than mine. Even at 17? Yep. yep. Wow. Yep. And rightly or wrongly, wrongly most of the time, but huh. I just had this belief, you know, if, if my game's from? at its best, mum. Right. Yeah, absolutely mum. I can play a game, like my worst games, dad would still, um, he'd be like, oh, no, but the, the touch you did have was just fantastic. <laughs> the I've one had, touch you had, you're on fire. Dad, I've had three for the game. <laughs> um, but mum would be straight down the barrel. Wasn't your best work. Right. But dad was always, everything, every game, there was always an element of good, but mum was, you know, the truth serum there. Um, so that ruthlessness definitely comes from her. So the, the question you often ask, especially of cricketers, is how many test matches before you felt comfortable that you, you were going to be in the team every week? But it sounds like that wasn't a, an issue for you. Not really. 2009, the, my third game that year, we played against Fremantle and I played well. And that's when I th- sort of thought, no one can catch me if I've got space. It's just putting yourself in a position um, more often than not to get in to that scenario where you can show your weapons, you know. So, um, and it took me some time to get sort of midfield minutes early in my career. But once I got in there, um, I never sort of looked back. And so how long in a timeline till you became the danger we are now that you'll be talked about, that, you know, you're in the fishbowl of Adelaide, that, you know, if Paddy plays well, we can win. How far into your career before that happens? 2012 was probably the first year, the most consistent year. Yep. Throughout 2011, it was probably when I was playing well, good things had happened. Dangerfield caught high. Oh, look at the strength. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> and takes off. Almost run down by oh, Hill. Keep going. There's no one in the square. This would be remarkable. He kicks it from 50, keeps it low. Unbelievable. Oh, it is crazy good. Um, and the fishbowl of Adelaide was all-consuming around that. But a great thing as a young player to wrap your head around because you lived and breathed footy, certainly a lot more than I do now with kids and a family and all that sort of stuff. Um, but you just – everything revolved around footy. All the people that you knew were involved in footy because you all come to Adelaide together. Most were from interstate. Um, so it was all-encompassing. But I felt like that was a good thing early on in my career and – and, you know, probably one of the most influential people in my football career has been Scott Camprioli. Um, when he arrived as a, as a midfield coach, he really helped add the, um, the polish to my game, the, the finishing touches around the game acumen and understanding it would be better and, and looking for ways other than just your sheer raw power to get into games and good. Um, yeah, he's been hugely instrumental for me. Well, we, oh, we joked about the start about the the uh, banana bread and the finger bun over there with a one centimetre of butter. Are, are you an obsessive footballer or you're not an obsessive footballer? In Adelaide, absolutely I was. There wasn't a day off where I didn't go into the club and touch, whether it was with Sloaney or all of the guys, Andy Otten, um, that, that I sort of came through with. It was just you lived and breathed the text like you, it's what you did. Um, so for eight years... Never had Maccas, never had KFC. Everything was just dedicated to that. And then different coming back as a 26-year-old 
knowing that, right, you've come back on a really big deal. There's a responsibility now to, to get going. Um, because, you know, that homecoming and welcoming can be very short if you mm. don't deliver. Mm. Uh, so that sort of, not that the professionalism changed, but it was just a different, it was a different market coming home, being close to Melbourne and being in the spotlight of what Victoria yeah. is. And like it or low that it is just different in Victoria. It yeah. is the centre of the footballing universe. We'll get to the, the, the media and, and how you approach it and what it's like. I can still remember clearly I was filling in Triple M breakfast. So Eddie, Darson was probably Mick at the time, must have been having a break. And I was doing it, filling in with Duck when the news came through that your coach had been murdered. Yep. And we were live on air and completely between the two of us, not equipped to have a coherent discussion or description of events that was going on and Rue came on from Adelaide and almost like a news reporter and I just remember for the first time in X number of years thinking I don't know what to ask him here because it, it was just so shocking so if you don't mind me asking like what was that event in your life as a young man so Jake Kelly comes up at five o'clock five a.m who's playing at Adam Essendon now, yeah. um, knocks on my door, Nobes at the front door and it's 5am, what is going on? And immediately my first reaction was something's wrong because no one rocks up at 5am, particularly the head of footy. Mm. Go down and Nobes is standing uh, on the front porch and he said, I need you to come in. I said, what's going on? He said, I need you to come in, Phil's been stabbed. He said, what? Phil's been stabbed? Yes. Phil's dead and still to this day it's it's almost easier to talk about because it doesn't feel real you know like the head of footy standing at the door saying you need to come in because the coach has been murdered so very very quickly into the club as quickly as possible and everyone's gathered phone calls being made to to bring players in you can't do anything other than tell the truth you can't in -hmm. terms of why you're bringing your players in you need to come in why just because we well, can't do that at 5 a.m. So very, very quickly the whole group's gathered and um, what has occurred is sort of loosely explained because you don't know all the details at the time. All you know is your coach has been stabbed and he's, he's dead. So you, you've, you know, I'm 25 at the time and one of the, one of the leaders and, you know, you're trying to console each other, young players in the team, and it's extraordinary. This is not a drill. This is not a joke. This is unbelievable. You've got some breaking news which you can give to us here on uh, Five to Blame. Police have just come down to confirm that the 55-year-old man who was murdered here at Summerton Park at 2 o'clock this morning was the coach of the Adelaide Crows, Phil Walsh. We now know that Crows coach Phil Walsh has been murdered mm. and that his 26-year-old son has been taken into custody. I cannot remember the situation. So I think that's, that's, I think it's Friday morning, that is, because 12 hours earlier, Phil during the day says, let's catch, we need to catch up. Loved his... Tea? Yep. Um, loved his teas. And he wanted to know what I was doing. Wanted to know one way or another. Whether you're coming back to Geelong? Yeah. So we meet at Henley Beach. This is like five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and I tell him, 
so he's aware. All right, now the coach knows I'm leaving. It's round whatever it is, seven or eight. Uh, and that's that. And then it sort of just gets buried in my mind that I've told the coach and now he's been murdered like literally six hours later. Um, so something that for me had been building up for so long around, shit, when do I actually tell the coach, tell the coach, and then all of a sudden the coach is gone. Mm. So it's an extraordinary sort of 12 hours and then you're sort of trying to console the group. We've got a game to play. Word comes through really quickly that Geelong have said it's inappropriate to do so and whatever time is needed, we don't feel like it's right to play. Their season's on the line. So we don't and then it's, it's just so surreal. We've decided that the game on Sunday between Adelaide and Geelong will not go ahead. This is a decision of the competition as a remark of respect to Phil Walsh. So you play the next week? We play the next week against West Coast. Phil had been a senior co- uh, uh, assistant coach over there. So I was looking at I was looking at that this yeah. last night, and there's the there's the silence, and there's a couple of tight shots of a couple of Crows players, you being one of them, and you just uh-huh. you're not look like you you're crying uncontrollably. Yeah. You can't begin to imagine what type of emotional weight they've had to deal with these players how incredibly personal it is for them. You just take your hat off to them. So much respect for the way they've handled themselves and the ability to come out here tonight and put in a very, very respectable performance. And I look at it, and with, with the benefit of hindsight now, and it's, it's not such a, a, a raw situation, a horrific situation, but time has passed. Like, the immediate thought was like, how did any of you guys go and play football? At that well, particular point, after that emotional I scenario, think that game was sort of the that was the letting out of emotion because it hadn't really been beforehand okay. because it was the shock and awe of what had occurred, and then yeah. a week later we were playing against West Coast. So for everyone, it was like this outpouring of emotion, and and probably added to by the fact that you know every club was coming together. I forget it was Bucks and might have been Alistair Clarkson that had come together. Yeah. Around the, the circle yes. and, and interlinking between the the clubs and, and that feeling of unity. And the football family, eh? Two coaches standing together with their arms around one another. It's very moving, isn't it? That was probably the, the emotional piece of the care that our industry can exhibit for people and wrap their arms around when you lose one of, you know, your own. And that was probably the emotional, you know, impact of it all. And it was all partners as you left the ground. Your, your partners, yeah. girlfriends, wives were all lined up there. It was, um, it was a tough thing to watch. Even to watch it back yesterday, it was a tough thing to watch back. Yeah, and it still doesn't, it still doesn't feel real. Well, that was my going to be question. Do you ever find yourself, you must have times where he pops into your mind? All the time because you'd have things that are just, were just ridiculous and just makes me laugh. You know, you'd have the, this view around the pirate ship and you all had to wear the same socks. Um, I remember sitting down, um, you know, he's at his office. I sit down, sit down like this. And he's, when you close your arm, when you fold your arms, it means you don't give a f-. And this is like, you know, a couple of weeks in. I'm like, oh, Jesus. 
right. I'll just check so on what, so what, else, what I want to do with my hands. You know, yeah, your arms crossed a lot of this interview, to be fair, but <laughs> yeah, right. And then, and then, and then <laughs> you know, typically in a footy club, um, <laughs> you know, you, you, your coach will ask a question. And this is pretty much every coach I've ever had. And you can have someone that gives the totally wrong answer. And they'll be like, yep, yep, yep. And then they'll sort of meander their way to what <laughs> the real answer we is. actually want to do. <laughs> Phil would stand up there and he'd ask what it is. And then someone might put their hand up, people getting reticent to do so. You know, I think it's this, nah. <laughs> Next, nah. Sign in, say something. Nah. <laughs> Does anyone know? And he was so blunt. So when I think of Phil, I like that, you know, that experience of of, you know, that day him being murdered. I don't think of that. I just think of all these other these other things that were really impactful as a as a young player. It's good to see you smiling talking about him. Yeah, well that because that's yeah. my emotion when I think of him. Some of the crazy stuff that he'd make us do. I remember we played a game against the Western Bulldogs and he said, we'd lost the ground ball. He's big on ground ball, post-clearance ground ball. If we don't win the ground ball post, we're all going to be at Brighton the next day, 5 a.m. We lose the game. We're at Brighton the next morning, 5 a.m. And everyone's in the car. I remember Jake sitting next to me and we're like- Jake Kelly. Jake Kelly. I was like, what? What are we going to be doing here? <laughs> and the car lights are all lined up. It's pitch black. You mentally cooked already. Everyone's shitting themselves. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you see this guy in red speedos wearing nothing but a towel around his neck walking up and he's got this grin on his face from ear to ear <laughs> and it's filled. <laughs> and so everyone gathers at Brighton. They're down there and he's like, we're swimming around the jetty. Does anyone, can anyone here not swim? Eddie puts his hand up. Eddie, Eddie bets. bets. I can't swim, Phil. You're off first, Ed. <laughs> so, so, so Ed's waiting out, absolutely packing himself. He's thinking about sharks, all these things. Like, Brian Jetty's like half a K long. Yeah, it is. So he goes out and then after like 50 minutes, like you can see Ed's eyes are white looking back at the group. And then Phil looks at the rest of the group and goes, well, we all better get in and uh, help him out. So we all go out. And then he had this way of just totally loosening and relaxing the group that all of a sudden it was okay, okay, we're just going into the, into the um, club and let's move forward. What are we winning this week? Grand balls, Phil. Grand balls. <laughs> He's brilliant. Had this, this incredible knack. You know, he'd code games all night post. You'd wake up the next morning after a game and you'd have five clips. You'd go to every single player before every game and give them a couple of things to work on. He's an incredible coach. That is the end of Patrick Dangerfield Part A. So much more for you to tune into in Part B.